From uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, Maya, Galen, Linda, Teresa, my dear three Emmas, Jessica, Lady Janice, Marie, Elena, Alethea, Bree, John, Katorres, Nanette, Rachel, Sam, Sophie, Whitney, David, Catherine, Trudy, and Holly. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patron, like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. And if you happen to watch on YouTube and also use Spotify, consider watching on Spotify instead as they have been kind enough to sponsor me and, well, we all know how YouTube treats us. But my podcasts are all written with a listener only in mind, so nothing is missed. Today's podcast will be on Bonnie and Clyde. I've really enjoyed these older cases lately and thought I'd do one more before moving on to something more recent. I hope you don't mind. Bonnie Elizabeth Parker was born on October 1st, 1910 in Rowena, nearly smack dab in the middle of Texas. And Clyde Chestnut Barrow was born on March 24th, 1909 in Ellis County, Texas, just barely south of Dallas. So let's get into some history for that time. The 1910s was more about European militarism. World War I would break out not long after Bonnie and Clyde were born. There was revolution breaking out in many countries around the world. The Portuguese Revolution, the Mexican Revolution, and we see the collapse of four of the last modern empires of Russia, Germany, Ottoman Turkey, Austria, Hungary, and so on. But much of the music of this time was ballroom-themed. In fact, many of the more fashionable restaurants were equipped with dance floors. Prohibition in the U.S. didn't begin until these two were small children, but the outlawing of alcohol was just around the corner. The very first public radio broadcast coming out of New York from the Metropolitan Opera House occurred. The Prime Minister of Egypt was assassinated. The first woman was authorized to fly an airplane this year in France. Slavery was finally made illegal in China. And the first filmed version of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein comes out, which is exciting. And for our cult lovers out there, 
Halley's Comet was visible from Earth in 1910 and wouldn't be again until 1986. And finally, King George V, the current Queen Elizabeth's paternal grandfather, became king. So this was the atmosphere of the world when Bonnie and Clyde were born. Let's start with Bonnie. Bonnie's maternal grandfather had hailed from Germany in the mid-1850s and immigrated to Dallas, Texas at some point. Her mother's maiden name was Krauss, to give you an idea. Bonnie's mother was Emma Krauss Parker, and her father was Charles Robert Parker. Her father worked as a bricklayer. Now, Charles and Emma's first child, a son named Coley, died not long after from what is suspected to be SIDS, or Sudden Infant Death Syndrome, in 1905. They had a second son named Hubert Nicholas, or Buster Parker, in 1908. Our girl Bonnie was born in 1910, and then her little sister and final child, Billie Jean, was born in 1912. When Bonnie was four years old, her father was killed in a construction accident, leaving Emma to be a single mother to three children. Needing some help, she uprooted the children and moved back toward Dallas and in with her parents in what was described as an impoverished suburb known as Cement City. She then took up work as a helper at a printing company and would later work as a seamstress. Bonnie started school, and throughout her very young years, she was indeed a very bright student, making very good grades and well-behaved, as the teachers described. When Bonnie was nine years old, her grandfather died from stomach cancer. But overall, though the family was quite poor, she showed signs of being a very typical, though highly intelligent, child. One of her cousins spoke about how Bonnie had always been deathly afraid of guns her whole childhood. Her grandfather kept a gun under his pillow, and when the girls went to make the beds, if Bonnie accidentally touched that gun, she would scream in terror. As she got older, she was an avid reader and loved poetry and literature. She was an honor student and was described as, quote, of a decidedly diminutive stature which just means that she was not a tall girl. She was quite petite, and she was described as attractive. She had even stated she wanted to become an actress. By Bonnie's second year of high school, according to Biography.com, she began dating and running around with another classmate, Roy Thornton. She was only 15 years old. Now, Roy had a past, as they say. A year later, at just 16 years old, Bonnie married Roy. She got a tattoo above her right knee on her thigh of two hearts, their names in each one. The newlyweds promptly dropped out of school, but the romance quickly turned sour. It didn't take long before Roy would be gone for weeks at a time, committing petty crimes, and Bonnie was convinced he was cheating on her. When he was home, it was rumored that he was quite physically abusive toward Bonnie. She kept a journal, and one of her entries read, quote, Before opening this year's diary, I wish to tell you that I have a roaming husband with a roaming mind. We are separated again for the third and last time. The first time, August 9th through 19th, 1927, 
and the second time, October 1st through 19th, 1927, and the third time, December 5th, 1927. I love him very much and miss him terribly, but I intend doing my duty. I'm not going to take him back. I am running around with Rosa Mary Judy, and she is somewhat a consolation to me. We have resolved this New Year's to take no men or nothing seriously. Let all men go to hell, but we are not going to sit back and let the world sweep by us. End quote. Roy would try to return to her in the early part of 1929 when Bonnie was 18 years old, but she would have no part of it. She was no longer in love with him, and she sent him away. Roy, years later, went on to continue to commit crimes, was arrested for robbing a bank, and put in Eastham Prison, where he was shot and killed by a guard during an escape attempt. It is interesting to note that Bonnie actually continued to wear her wedding ring until the day she died. She ran him off for good, though she never actually divorced him. In the 1930 census, the family were all living together. Emma was a seamstress at a manufacturing company. Hubert, Bonnie's big brother, and his wife were also living there, along with Bonnie's little sister, Billie Jean, her husband, Fred, and their newborn son, Fred Jr. Bonnie was now 20 years old. Bonnie herself found work as a waitress. It is really kismet that one of her regular customers was a man named Ted Hinton. Ted would go on to join the Dallas County Sheriff's Department and play an important role in the end of Bonnie and Clyde. But essentially, during this time, she wrote in her diary about how very lonely she was, about how she had found a love for photography, and how sick she was of the everyday predictable, boring routine of living in Dallas. Through a friend, Bonnie met Clyde Barrow, and it was love at first sight. So let's talk about Clyde's beginnings. Now, Clyde was, again, born just barely south of Dallas, Texas. To say his family was poor would be an understatement. His parents were Henry Basil Barrow and Cumi Talitha Walker. They had married in their later teens, but didn't begin having children for about three years after the marriage. They had seven children in all. In order, they were Elvin, Artie, Marvin, Nell, our boy Clyde, Leon, and finally Lillian. Henry, who it was said had no formal education and could not read or write, was described as a quiet and patient man who worked incredibly hard from sun up to sundown on sharecropper farms, making money to provide for his family. Cumi was a dutiful housewife. Now, Clyde was an adventurous child and loved playing with guns from the beginning. If he didn't have a toy gun, his sister later wrote, that he would use a stick. He always wanted to play pretend as Jesse James, Buffalo Bill, and the like. A couple of times, when he was still quite small, he disappeared, much to the panic of his family, only to be returned and confused as to why everyone was upset. It is speculated that in 1918, there was a terrible drought that resulted in very little to no crops growing, meaning there was nothing to harvest and Henry was out of a job. 
Within just a few short years, he uprooted his family, the children still living at home at least, and moved to Dallas, Texas to find better opportunities. So in 1921, when Clyde was 12 years old, they moved to Cement City, which is West Dallas now, first under their wagon and then upgraded into a tent, for crying out loud, in an established campsite under a viaduct or basically an overpass called The Bog, and they lived like this for five years. The bog was mostly a wetland area, and as you can imagine, considering the times, there was no real sanitation. It's not like there would have been restrooms or toilets that were cleaned and for public use. It was said that there was a lot of raw sewage, which attracted bugs, and the mosquitoes were horrible, and the kids would sometimes get sick, making life even more difficult. But Henry eventually saved enough money to buy a house. He worked as a salesman, selling goods from a wagon. Can you imagine? But kudos to Henry because he was so very self-disciplined in working and saving every spare dime he could to be able to get them a house. The family was extremely close, and Clyde absolutely adored his mother. Clyde was described in Biography.com as a, quote, small and unassuming boy. He actually stayed in school until he was 16 years old and had taught himself how to play the guitar and the saxophone. He had dreams of becoming a musician someday. Clyde's older brother, Marvin, that they called Buck, was Henri and rapidly becoming a petty thief. Buck talked Clyde into getting in on the action, and soon enough, he was also beginning to steal small things. He then graduated into stealing cars. When Clyde was 16 or 17 years old in 1926, Henry bought the family a house and then immediately began construction on the front of the house, building a store and gas station. Life was really beginning to come full circle, and yet Clyde was already pretty deep into his life of crime. The same year his father bought the house, Clyde was arrested. He had rented a car and then hadn't brought it back on the agreed-upon day. The police located him and confronted him about it, and he fled the scene. After his release, he and Buck were soon arrested together for stealing turkeys. And it is said that Buck also spurred Clyde on to learning how to break into safes and so on. By the time Clyde was 20 years old, he was well known by the authorities and was a full-fledged fugitive of the law, wanted for several armed robberies. But Clyde had vowed that he had zero interest in ever going to prison again. So in January 1930, 20-year-old fugitive Clyde met 19-year-old, now ex-waitress, Bonnie, through a mutual friend that Bonnie was staying with because the friend had broken her arm and was out of work, and Bonnie was helping her. Clyde's sister described Bonnie like this, quote, Bonnie was an adorable little thing, more like a doll than a girl. She had yellow hair that kinked all over her head like a baby's, the loveliest skin I've ever seen without a blemish on it, a regular Cupid's bow of a mouth and blue, blue eyes. And she was so tiny. 
She was only 4 feet 10 inches tall and weighed between 85 and 90 pounds. Clyde was said to be around 5 foot 7 inches tall with chestnut hair, brown eyes, and quite handsome. He was particular about how he presented himself to the world. His hair had to be cut and combed just so. His fingernails had to be clean. But he had a fun-loving personality, was described as very innocently charming, always laughing, and made everyone feel at ease. The two were immediately smitten with each other. Bonnie's mother said in her book, quote, The True Story of Bonnie and Clyde, which I highly recommend, quote, The truth is never so interesting as a good, wind-blown yarn made up out of the whole cloth. Bonnie Parker met Clyde Barrow in a kitchen of a simple home in West Dallas, end quote. Her mother indicated that obviously Bonnie did not know that Clyde already had a criminal past. Against what has been written about Bonnie that the media sensationalized, she was a headstrong but tender-hearted young woman. She would get in trouble for feeding hungry people for free at the restaurant that she had worked at, things of that sort. She, in fact, did not smoke cigars. She had one in her mouth while posing for a photo, but she smoked cigarettes. She was not the, quote, tough, calloused, hard, coarse, and utterly beyond all human feeling, end quote, that she was made out to be. For the next few weeks, the two spent as much time together as they possibly could. And then the authorities eventually caught up with Clyde at Bonnie's mother's house and put him in prison for stealing a car. When they came to the house and found him asleep on the couch, they said to him, quote, If you've got any rabbit in you, you'll run like Buck. End quote. They were speaking about his brother. Clyde allegedly, still sleepy, responded with, quote, Buddy, I'd sure run if I could, grinning up at them. It was said that Bonnie wailed in grief, hugged on Clyde, all while he told her everything was going to be fine. When they walked him out of the house, her mother said she just sat on the couch looking completely despondent, tears streaming silently down her face. Now, while in prison, Bonnie apparently visited him as often as she could. They sent love letters back and forth to each other. I'll read a portion of one of Bonnie's to you now. Quote, Sugar, just a line tonight. How is my baby by now? Today has been just another day to me and a hard one. Sure wish I could have seen you today. I think I could have made it. Maybe I can see you tomorrow. I went out to your mother's today. Honey, I don't know any news. Nothing ever happens anymore. At least nothing interesting. I have had the blues all day that I could lie down and die. I'm so disgusted. Honey, I don't know what to do. I wish you were here to tell me what to do. Everything has turned out wrong. I even sprained my wrist today. Sugar, when you get out, I want you to go to work, and for God's sake, don't get into any more trouble. End quote. Some of these letters are in the book that I referenced before. After a couple of months or so, Clyde was transferred to Waco, Texas, and Bonnie followed, staying with a family member there. Bonnie smuggled a gun into the prison and helped Clyde escape. He was recaptured soon after. 
The prison that he was in was notorious for being a bad place to be housed. One particular prisoner was given the latitude of being a sort of handyman, and due to this, he was allowed to rough up other prisoners, and the guards ignored it. This man decided to repeatedly assault, and I don't know if that means beating or worse, Clyde until Clyde had had enough, and Clyde murdered him. Now, another inmate who was already serving a life sentence took the blame. It was also said that the manual labor was so horrible that Clyde had two of his own toes cut off in an accident, quote, end quote, so he could get some level of rest. But due to his mother's petitioning, he was released soon after in February 1932. When Clyde showed up to her house and Bonnie realized it was him, it was said she jumped up and threw herself into his arms. His sister gave him a stern talking to about how he should straighten up, get a job, and walk the straight and narrow. He argued that no one would give him a job because he was an ex-con, but he was able to find work with a construction company up in Massachusetts, though he didn't even last two weeks. Clyde stated he would not be working and being that far away from his family. He could not endure it. And thus began the life and crimes of Bonnie and Clyde. They and another guy began robbing stores and gas stations. And in April, just two months after Clyde's release, Bonnie and another man were arrested. They had tried and failed to rob a hardware store attempting to get more firearms. Bonnie was sentenced to a few months and the other man served time, never joining the couple again. While she was serving her short sentence, Clyde drove the getaway car in a robbery where the shop owner was shot and killed. Clyde had been in the car, but the owner's wife still chose him out of a photo lineup. That August, Clyde and some of his gang were drunk on moonshine in a parking lot in Oklahoma when a sheriff and deputy approached the group of men, but they opened fire on the officers, killing one and nearly killing the other. Now, after Bonnie's release, she met back up with Clyde and their posse. Christmas of that year, Clyde and another man shot and killed a man stealing his car. The next month, January 1933, the posse walked into a police trap that had been orchestrated for another outlaw, and a shootout ensued. Clyde shot and killed another deputy. Since April, they had already murdered five people. Two months later, Clyde's brother, Buck, was granted a full pardon and released from prison, and he and his wife moved in with Bonnie, Clyde, and posse member Jones in a temporary hideout in Joplin, Missouri, about an hour and a half from me. Apparently, Buck and his wife tried to talk Clyde into turning himself in. They were not successful. Instead, the group drank heavily and played card games loudly well into the night, and eventually some neighbors notified the local police. The police put together a five-man force in two cars on April 13th to confront what they suspected were bootleggers. Little did they know. The three men began shooting, killing two officers. 
Bonnie opened fire to cover the men as they fled, though she didn't hit anyone, and they all jumped into their car and fled. Clyde had narrowly escaped being shot when a coat button of all things deflected a bullet. Jones had been hit in the side and Buck had been grazed, but otherwise unharmed. They were forced to leave all of their possessions behind. Some of the items left there were Buck's recent parole papers, guns, and a poem that Bonnie had written, and a camera with a few rolls of undeveloped film. The Joplin newspaper developed the film and discovered many photos of the gang pointing guns at each other and so on. This put the gang on the front page of many newspapers. Because they were a couple, they became instant celebrity criminals. For the next three months, they ran north and south from Texas to Minnesota. They robbed banks along the way and even kidnapped a couple in Louisiana while stealing their car. They even kidnapped police officers. The people they took, they would drive them far away from home, dump them off, but also left them with some money to get home. But make no mistake, they would shoot anyone blocking their path without pause. But with their insta-fame came the issue of being recognized wherever they went. They got into a car accident and Bonnie suffered third-degree burns on her right leg, so severe that the muscles contracted and caused her leg to draw up. One of the posse members later said that it was so bad they didn't think she was going to live. Quote, the hide on her right leg was gone from her hip down to her ankle. I could see the bone at places. End quote. A nearby family who lived on a farm helped them and tried to tend to Bonnie's leg. Their reward was being tied to a tree with barbed wire and handcuffed while the group stole their car and fled to Arkansas to lay low and let Bonnie heal. They then went back up to Missouri and stayed at a motel, but they were noticed quickly. The authorities were alerted. Law enforcement from Oklahoma, Texas, and Arkansas as well as reinforcements from Kansas City, all came and began to watch the group. A shootout ensued, and the gang got away, only Buck's wife was nearly blinded from shattering glass, and Buck sustained a head injury that was described as, quote, a bullet wound that blasted a large hole in his forehead's skull bone and exposed his injured brain, end quote. They stopped in Iowa, knowing Buck wasn't going to make it. It was said that he actually was somewhat conscious and even ate some, but he had suffered severe blood loss, and again, his brain was exposed. They began digging him a grave. But the locals noticed them, saw the carnage, and alerted the police. They were soon surrounded, but Clyde, Bonnie, and Jones escaped on foot. Buck was shot in the back and his wife was captured. Buck actually lasted another five days in a local hospital before dying. The trio still traveled far and wide, still robbing banks as they went. That fall, they traveled back to Dallas to visit their families at great risk. But things were quiet for a very short while and the families did their best to nurse Bonnie's leg. 
In January 1934, they were able to bust some men out of prison, which was a huge embarrassment to the Texas authorities. But this brought in the feds and a special investigator, and he began tailing them, sleeping in his car, and never more than a couple of towns away. Another town, two more police officers murdered. The authorities began mapping out the usual areas Clyde and the gang would go, and they were able to predict that they would be in Louisiana soon. They set up an ambush and waited. As predicted, Bonnie and Clyde, at around 9.15 a.m. on May 23rd, drove past the ambush, and the officers opened fire into the car. Clyde was shot in the head and died instantly, They later reported hearing Bonnie screaming. This was the official statement about the shooting. Quote, Each of us six officers had a shotgun and an automatic rifle and pistols. We opened fire with the automatic rifles. They were emptied before the car got even with us. Then we used shotguns. There was smoke coming from the car and it looked like it was on fire. After shooting the shotguns, we emptied the pistols at the car, which had passed us and ran into a ditch about 50 yards on down the road. It was almost turned over. We kept shooting at the car even after it stopped. We weren't taking any chances. End quote. The couple took countless bullets. The coroner said that each took several bullets to the head. They were shot full of so many holes that it was said embalming them was quite difficult. They had said they wanted to be buried together, but Bonnie's family refused, though both are buried in Dallas. So the car was displayed at fairs, amusement parks, and flea markets for 30 years or so, and once became a fixture at a Nevada racetrack. They charged people $1 to sit in it. As of 2022, the car and the shirt Barrow was wearing when killed are displayed at Prim Valley Resort and Casino in Prim, Nevada, along Interstate 15. And that is the story of Bonnie and Clyde. Not as glamorous as most people believe. Bonnie, before Clyde, appeared to be an intelligent, good girl. Restless, but good. I think Clyde wasn't a bad person, but the lawless life was too enticing, the fame too possessing, and after his first murder outside of the prison, that was the straw. Because I live close to where they had been in Missouri, I have heard their story time and time again. I knew someone that lived next door to the place they stayed in, in Joplin. They told me there were still visible bullet holes. So what really confuses me is why, even though Clyde seemed to be a decent person and Bonnie a pretty good girl, all things considered, did they have to go that far? Why? This is something that actually confuses me. Tell me, guys, what do you think? Leave me a comment below or DM me on Instagram. You can email me at SerialKillingInstagram at gmail.com. All of my contact information is in the notes. But most importantly, thank you guys so, so much because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and 
whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing. 